Hello, this is Raw, the 90s Rave podcast with me, Tom Latcham. Welcome to the latest episode. So far on Raw, we've largely chatted to Acid House, Jungle and Hardcore artists. But if you've been following us from the start, you'll know that we are aiming to interview the full range of 90s rave genres, including harder styles. And we've in fact been asked, when's our first harder style DJ going to come? Well... Now, they don't come much harder than today's guest. He's a helter-skelter technodrome resident and legend, hailing from the southwest of England, where they all seem to be slightly on the nuttier side of rave music. This man is a rave legend who's shaped hardcore music over the past 25 years. He's made my ears ring on a number of occasions. Some of the most banging nights I've ever been to, it's DJ Scorpio. Hi, Tom. Hello, Mr. Scorpio. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, so, as I said in the intro, you are a slightly different kettle of fish to all of our previous guests. They've all tended to be um, happy hardcore, I suppose, or jungle DJs and artists or MCs. Um, how do you view the sort of harder music you play in relation to that explosion of rave music back in the 1990s when this podcast refers to, really? I think I think what... what um myself and my other peers in the, in the genre I play um, would say would really we evolved from the very early part of the 90s music scene we didn't you know we we didn't really have the hardcore techno side of things there at the beginning it was something that evolved from that beginning really it was uh, suddenly you started hearing a few tunes that were a bit more four to the floor than a breakbeat and uh, on big sound systems um, a, a straight four-four kick drum can sound beautiful, really. So it was uh, from there. It seemed to seem to grow out of it. You know, we all we all took our influences from all of it, from Acid House, Belgian New Beat, UK Breakbeats, bit of Jungle. It was you know it, you, you took the elements that you like and and expanded on it. Really, I would say. And you often played in those uh, the techno rooms, the sweat boxes, as they're known, oh, yeah. um, the dingier, darkier, uh, darker sort of clammier rooms. Um, how important a part of the '90s rave scene were those rooms? Because some people will have gone to the smaller events that you've played at, but a lot will only really have experienced hardcore techno and you and your sets in those rooms and in those little forays into those sweat boxes. Yeah, well. Um... As, to quote my friend Ribsy, is uh, the party's in the back room. So you know, <laughs> it was a it was a lot more um, grungier in the back room. You could you could play. You didn't have you could play what you wanted. Obviously, you know they've still got to enjoy it, but um, you could play what you wanted, and you could be a bit more um, adventurous, should one say, rather than you know sometimes even when you got bookings in the main room, you did think heavily about how you would play it compared to your, your audience um in in the in the, in the sweat boxes as you say but you know some of the best parties i've had have been small venues it's not you know small venues big sound systems very little lighting great sound system it's good enough really as long as you've got the sound system really our uh 
our music depends on it although we did get the bum end of the deal on a few occasions yeah yeah oh and i've been in a few rooms where you're like oh dear they really haven't paid much attention to this but we'll explore that a little bit later on in the podcast uh, whether there was a feeling some of those bigger raves it was maybe a bit of an afterthought but certainly it wasn't for those people who 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 loved uh bouncing away and the bouncy floors uh and you know are we going to go through the floor here um people people like that it's happened has it <laughs> well, nearly. Uh, there was a, one of the scouts I remember. The security came running up. They'd stopped anyone, any more people coming into the sweat box, and uh, they'd stopped anyone coming up. And then the security guards actually ran over to the decks and went, "You're going to have to calm it down a bit. The ceiling tiles are falling off in the foyer on top of people." So, yeah, nearly. Not. So, quite what did you do? Did you through. crank it? Did you crank it up? No, just leave it where it is. Really, it's like you know, it's. Uh, you don't, you don't turn it down. Sometimes you might make the effort to look like you've done something, but very rarely do. <laughs> so um, You're trying to rinse every rinse every uh, ounce out of the sound system as it was on a lot of occasions anyway. So, so uh, hardcore tended to be a sort of happy, bouncy vibe and jungle tended to be a, a, a moody, rolling vibe. What were the techno rooms about in your mind? Everything. The beauty of the techno room where they were so diverse, you know, you could go from, you know, I, I think my first ever Skelter, I followed Dave Angel. Uh, for me, that was a bit of a blessing because it made what I play stand out so much more for following Dave. Um, but, you know, we've the whole beauty of the room was it would it would flow. There would be, you know, from Mark and Mick playing uh, techno and trance, you know, Myself, Clarky, producer, the light playing, um, the more party sort of hardcore. With you know, it, it, it was harder and faster. But then you had your other extreme, more extremes with sort of lofty H and uh, music maker would would probably crank it to another level. So you know, you had. There were rarely, you did get some people with Mo who were probably at one end of the scale listening to another. But generally, you know, people were very, I think, were more accepting in the techno room of a, of a wider range of music. So, you know, it was a great place, great, innovating, you know, so many like minded people getting together and just, you know, you probably hear me say more than once today, it's all about the party and those rooms were about, a party yeah so uh well uh, this is uh, dj scorpio we're here on the 90s rave podcast if you want to get in touch with us hello at the 90s rave podcast.co.uk check out all our social media channels and we're also filmed all on youtube now so if you are listening to this on audio get yourself over to youtube because you can watch it live uh, well not live but you can watch it in hd and also uh, there's plenty more besides uh, but before we uh, move into more about the music uh, mr scorpio uh, i want to do a quick get to know you round uh, just to just to find out a little bit more about you and, and, and what makes you tick as a person. So we'll do a quick fire, quick answers. What's your full name, Scorpio? Uh, for tax purposes, uh, <laughs> uh, no, Simon Mitchell. <laughs> Simon Mitchell. How old are you, Si? Uh, I am now um, a sprightly 54 years old now. 54, so. there you go. And uh, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in London as a kid, um, not for long enough, uh, moved to the southwest. Still, as a kid, uh, finished secondary school, so I've pretty much been a Southwest boy by heart. Though, 
you know, some people may term you as a grockle even still. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those old habits die hard in the southwest. And, and uh, whereabouts do you live now? Uh, I live in Paynton, which is right next to Torquay. So, okay. Uh, yeah. What's your relationship status? My relationship status is uh, in a relationship. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer married. Uh, I've got a new partner. So, uh, okay. Yeah. Are you a dad? Have you got any children? I've got two. Uh, Two kids, one of each. Um, the daughter's nineteen, and uh, my son's uh, fourteen, nearly fifteen. So, do, do they like yeah. your music? No. <laughs> well, I say that. No, they do. They do. But you know, I, I think I took my son was ten when I took him to the Prodigy. Like, you know, he's a bit more into his. Uh, drill and grime now and keeps going oh listen to this dad and i'm like don't really like lyrics and i'm i wouldn't i wouldn't push my you know music's very personal to me um and i think it should be to everyone you know it's not it's not a you shouldn't force down i used to like watching him in the car when uh, when you know kick drums drop and all that and just watch for reactions and uh yeah it's uh it's good. They love both. Love music, good. both. But and, um, yeah. and, and what's your? If you had to pick a a, a favourite style of music that isn't the music that you play, what would it be? Well, I've said that. Uh, like, pro, I'm, a, I'm a, a bit of a uh, just rave fanboy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a prodigy fanboy. I've been from the beginning. So yeah, um, okay. I, that's probably the one I have pushed most on my kids. Actually, so a fine choice. A fine choice. And uh, who's the most famous celebrity that you've met? Oh, God. Celebrity. Um, I sat next to Isla, Isla Fisher on the way up, <laughs> which is Sasha Baron Cohen's missus. So, Good choice. She's, uh, I sat she's, next to her on a flight to Edinburgh, so she'll do. She will do. She will indeed. Um, who's your, do you have a sporting hero? Um, probably. I'm a, I'm a massive Liverpool fan, have been. Um, so you know, thirty years of hurt are over now. And uh, congratulations. And um, yeah, so it'd probably be uh, somebody like Kevin Keegan or Kenny Dalglish from being a kid, really. So. Okay. Um, and what would you say is the best thing about you? Uh, just a normal geezer, really. <laughs> and what's the worst thing about you? I'm just a raver that made you lucky. How about that? That's probably yeah, why, not? Is, so. why not? Why oh, not? Well, hard work, wasn't it? It wasn't. It wasn't luck. It was hard well, work. Um, it, was, it, it was. It was. You know. It was um, being in the right place at the right time into, uh, you know, basically fell into a style of music that, you know, I loved, but it was almost like I spotted it without other people that were playing it, realising it was it was a bit weird. So, yeah, it was... Uh, okay. Yeah. And uh, what's your worst trait? Mm, God. My missus would say smoking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably fair enough, to be honest. Uh, and, and tell us one thing about yourself that will really shock people, that will surprise people. Uh, I don't know. I did six years in the Navy and was cleared to top secret, so I did... Uh, oh, right. Some stuff I'm not allowed to tell you about. So. <laughs> oh, right. Wow. What, what was it like being in the Navy? Uh, it was cool. I did it from leaving school. Um, it's probably, you know, I still put that down as one of the influences to how I ended up doing this was, you know, one of my best mates in the Navy was from Salford in Manchester and he was playing me stuff in like sort of the late 80s that, you know, that I'd never heard before. And it was massive, massive influence onto where I went to from there. So, right, okay. so yeah, so I, I, I owe it. Um, great time, great time for 
you know, I, I, I was lucky. I did probably four and a half years in the Caribbean and up the East wow. coast of the States. So, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was like going on a cruise and getting paid to do it sometimes. So, Fantastic. Yeah, That's great. Uh, well, there you go. That's uh, Simon Scorpio. You know a little bit more about him than when you first uh, started this interview. Uh, but uh, now we're going to move on to talk a little bit about his early life and his raves, although we found out he was in the Navy, which is a bit of new information we didn't know. Uh, but yeah, here we go. And uh, if you want to get in touch, get in touch. Hello at the 90s Rave podcast.co.uk and on all social medias. So, Simon, um, what was life growing up in a relatively remote place like Paynton, Torquay, uh, which is quite cut off from the rest of the country? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I I was lucky because I I, I travelled from sort of 17, 18 to I was 22 with the Navy. And, you know, so I, I, I'd been out to other places. It, but, but to be honest, it was, you know, it was your general seasidey resort, very, you know, lots of influxes of tourists during the summer and then probably quietened down over the winter. It wasn't, you know, so much as a all year round sort of resort. It seemed to, you could tell the, the time of year from where you lived. And, you know, in the summers growing up, you know, it was before the, um, I would say, influx of the package holidays to Europe. It was really busy down here and it was a great place to grow up. So, you know, it's, I can, you know, I could probably walk to the sea when I was a kid in five minutes and I could probably walk to the sea now in two nice. minutes. So nice. it's uh, nice. yeah, and, a great place. And, and how that's sort of the idea, I suppose, that it is quite cut off. And I wonder, did that at all shape your musical tastes? Um, we, um, no, not really. I would say, I would say my musical taste got, as I said a minute ago, really the guy in the Navy was, you know, he was playing me stuff like the Mondays and Stone Roses stuff. And he was, he was seeing them in pubs in, in Salford of a weekend. And, you know, it was just, and he, and he come back with so much random music. He got me quite into um, New Order as well at the time, which was, I would probably put that as one of the, you know, early um, techno bands, you know, UK techno bands of, of sorts. And, um, you know, I, met, I went to go and see it. I saw him in, God, in Washington in um, something like 1987 with Echo and the Bunny Man. It was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm feeling this on, on, on a bigger scale. And I suppose when when I'd left the navy and I, I started going out, I started we we did start hitting sort of uh, acid house party clubs in Plymouth, and you know, and and you, you do sort of notice you you're, you're into that sort of four four sound, and, and you're you're hearing a lot of sort of Belgian techno at the time and uh, and Detroit stuff, and and it, and it was like, oh, hold on a minute, there's there's more to this than the commercial commercial bits you're hearing, and that's. That's when you disappear down the rabbit hole and you don't really come back. So, so how did you disappear down that rabbit hole? Because uh, nowadays you can disappear down that rabbit hole on the internet really, really easily. But uh, in terms of back then, uh, not quite so easy. How did you explore what sort of music you actually might like? Uh, we had a really, really good um, record shop in the town. Um, I went in there... Um, I later worked in there, but um, 
when uh, my my friend was there and he was really really knowledgeable really like just he's a young chinese lad and he was just so switched on um it was like a walk-in record. You just you knew every catalogue number, everything. You go, you go, you ask about a label, and he'd give you the whole back catalogue and everything. And it was, you know, it was. We had we had some really good record shops um, down here. We had Mighty Force in Exeter, which was run by Mark Darby, who basically first released um, Aphex Twin. Um, we had, um, uh, believe it or not, a, a really good girl who worked in HMV, even in Torquay, that was just on it for techno, but like underground stuff. And, you know, you were going in there and thinking, hold on a minute, you can't get much more commercial than an HMV. Yeah, they had some serious stuff in there. And, you know, it was the music was never, never an issue to find. Um, you know the, the the record shop in Torquay was you know when I ended up working there we were we were um, mail ordering stuff all over the UK at, like come the end of it it was uh, yeah really good great great place to work great times to be really yeah of course uh, we'll talk a little bit more about working in that shop a, a little bit later but what was so you were you were a raver then what was your first can you remember your first rave uh, can you recall it. I can, I can recall my first raves that I went to was um, Zena's in Plymouth. Now, Zena's was totally underground, proper acid house party, proper three or four pretty fairly unknown DJs at the time in there. Um, there was a local guy, Rasta Paul from Torquay. He ran a night there. When they got booted from the venue, then it was taken over by somebody called SAS. Now, SAS translates probably not very much to you at the moment, but when I tell you that it was stood for Sean and Simon and Sean being Ribsy was the original connection I made with Sean was going to that club very early on. So, you know, that was very underground, not really loads of big names coming in. It was fucking good residents playing fucking good music. So they were... It, it was just a vibe that even now, thinking back to it, brings a smile to your face because it was just something else that, you know, like-minded people doing something new. It wasn't what all your other mates were doing over the weekend. They, they were, you know, they were at your run-of-the-mill clubs and we were travelling like probably 30 miles down to Plymouth to go there. But you'd turn up there and half the town from where you're from was in there and, yeah, really, really good times. But as a raver, you know, that wasn't, you know, I didn't play there, never played there, um, but it had such a massive part on where where, where it all began, really. So. And did you tend, when you were a raver, did you tend to stay in that local area or did you ever sort of go, go further afield than that to any of the, the, the other bigger events? Um, well, Southwest was kicking, so you know there were there were lots, lots and lots of free parties. Right. Um, there was nothing you know, changes. Like, Sorry, <laughs> nothing changes, does it? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no they were, they're quite renowned. I wouldn't I wouldn't put them quite as hardcore as the Welsh, but they you know they're uh, they're of the same ilk, should we should we say? So you know, in the beginning, I would sort of say it would be Bristol downwards. But from Bristol to the tip of Cornwall, really, it was, you know, there, there were 
there was a lot of stuff going off and you know they the amount of free parties that were going on between even sort of halfway between Torquay and Exeter they've got a big forest and we used to go back up there for free parties and I remember going there's like a separated this forest by a dual carriageway and I, I went to the garage about like five in the morning to get supplies and uh, I bumped into a ladder there in the garage and I was like oh free parties banging and he went I haven't even seen you there and I'm like I've been there all night, I've been by the decks. And he's like, really? And then it turns out they were at another free party on the other side of the dual carriageway and we were on one this side. And <laughs> between the two, there was like two and a half thousand people at the party and like you didn't even know the other one was going off. So, Amazing. But yeah, it used to be very, very good down here for parties. Like uh, we got Dartmoor as well, which is very hard to police. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, of course. And uh, you, um, <laughs> you, you, you like to party clearly. From uh, from what, what little we know of you already, did you uh, did you get on it? Were you uh, were you were you dabbling in drugs, MDMA, acid, anything like that? What were you doing? Yeah, well, you know, I think that was all part and parcel of the scene back then. It was, you know, it was. <laughs> Yeah, very, <laughs> very, um, what's the word? Prevalent, should one say, in Messy. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it was all part and parcel of the experience, you know, and thank God I've come come through it okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we all did. And anybody that tells you they didn't, it's a liar in my book. So, yeah. So in terms of your DJing, we've talked about you as a raver side, but in terms of your DJing, um, who first showed you how to do it? How did you get into it? Uh, my mate had a pub um, with a set of decks in, really. And, you know, we used to go back there. We'd go out partying, go back to the pub, have a lock-in, you know, not not thing, decks on, booze out, just, you know, and it would be like everybody, like... I know half a dozen of my mates would all play. So you just, as the night went on, you just go up and do a bit and and whatever. And that that was really how it started. It was, um, you know, access to a to a decent pair of decks, which none of us had then. And uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was there available, and mo- we were we were in there most most nights. <laughs> and it, you uh, you're known for your harder styles now. But did you ever get into any of the happier stuff or jungle, yeah. or were you were you always into mixing that harder stuff and the, and the um, four beat? No, no, no. I uh, you know I make I've I've got records that some people may term as happy hardcore now that you know they weren't happy hardcore. It didn't exist uh, when I bought them. So, but yeah, no, it was um, all, all forms all forms of breakbeat, just good tunes. And you know, I'm I'm a, I like good tunes. It's all about the party you. You know, it's about making people dance and giving people a good time. And that's that's my ethic through all of it. It's not about being anal and who can be, you know, the most upfront or anything like that. It's there the, the people are there are to have a party, to let go and have a good time. And it's it's our job to do that for them. So well, one of your reviews on Discog says that you are an unashamed uh, crowd pleaser. You know, you you always get the party going. Is is that? Would you describe your DJ style as that? Is that that you know? You, you, no one's going to say they're up their own ass in terms of music, but you de- you know you're definitely not. You're absolutely all about just pleasing the crowd, knowing what they want, and and delivering it. 
And given it, yeah, yeah, totally, totally giving them what they want. You know, it's it's okay to go, oh, I'm going to play them all these tunes. If that doesn't work, there's no get-out clause, you know. It's, it's all about having confidence, going going in armed and dangerous of, you know, with what you've, you know, pe- people say, do you plan sets? Yes, I do. For Like things are, you know, there's always been times when I, we've winged it or whatever because, you know, you may have back in the day three sets in a night and there's no way I'm playing the same set at all three venues that's just like a no-no be it play it one way and then play it backwards it it wouldn't be the same and never has been so um you know it is about I'm I'm pure having been a raver and watched people I learned so much from that experience from the DJs that came and cr- into the crowd acknowledged the party, people that went to the party, um, to the DJ that would walk in, do his set, not really take much notice, get paid and fuck off again. That that was a big thing for me because that was something I tried not to do. Sometimes circumstance when you've got gigs in other towns, you've got no choice in the matter to do that, but it's always, you know... Um, respectful to the club to turn up early to listen what's going on to see what they're reacting to to give you an idea of what you've got in mind was going to work because sometimes you might turn up and go they played that they're not into that and that's what I've got planned so you know to change on the fly and understand your audience is is another thing as well so yeah and so when did you first hear the, the what we what we would define as hardcore techno and decide that that was the route that you we're going to a forge i think it's been quite funny looking back on it like you know like thinking about this interview and then um we went to you know i went i remember going to wasp factory in plymouth probably 1990 listening to lenny d predominantly i would say the biggest influence was easy groove by a mile dennis was um amazing Uh, like amazing fantastic uh selector and DJ. Oh, he, and, and he he didn't give a fuck. He played what he wanted, when he wanted. You know, he'd turn up at a techno night and play drum and bass. Didn't give a shit. That's what he wanted to play that week. You know, but I, I Dennis would be so diverse in his sets, but he would play some hardcore techno. And it was almost like being that hunter, being that, uh, you know, listening and, and watching the reaction to that little bit was what like I'm, I'm like oh that that's amazing and and it's almost latching on to that and going that bit is the bit of his set that did that for me tonight take that's the bit I'm, i want to take from dennis i don't want to mimic dennis not that i could um but to take that element of what he gave me and go actually do you know what that's that's the angle i Want to, where I want to go. So, yeah, what do you think? It, what do you think it was about your character that drew you to those sounds? Um, I don't know because it wasn't just drawing me. It was drawing a, a lot of. I, I think it, it just something that was just a little bit different to the norm. It was you know there were a lot of people playing break beats. There were people playing more jungle. It was just something that had an edge i was you know i grew up i listened to the specials i listened to stiff little fingers i've got you know anything that i've listened to has always had a little bit of a you attitude to it and it and and it it was that it's almost like when people go oh you can't play it that fast yes you can 
if you think it sounds good at that speed, play it. You know, like loads of the tunes I'm known for weren't made to be played at the speed I played them, but it was going, on, do you know what? I like it like that. I'm going to play it like that. And it's <laughs> that was the, you know, we, we'd turn up at, at gigs with screwdrivers and have the platters off because we were buying the tunes that sounded right. They just weren't fast enough. So we were ripping the decks apart for the set and speeding the decks up and everything. So, you know, it was manipulating what you had until there was an abundance of that style of music where you could pick. You were almost having to force the issue a little bit, I think. So. And um, you you mentioned earlier that you worked in Sounds, which was the <coughs> record shop in your area, and it was owned by Mike McGowan, who owned Claire's Nightclub as well, where you also yeah. played. It was the, the only real underground club that was in Torquay. How did you manage to get in at the at the shop? We, I spoke to Ray Keith recently, and he said that he made it his mission to get into City Sounds and then Black Market Records because... Uh, he knew then he would be getting the newest tunes and he'd be meeting the people who he was going to create tunes with. How did you find... Was it as deliberate as Ray or was it more accidental? No, well, more accidental. You know, Mike's, Mike's an absolute legend that runs that shop. He used to be um, like a guy at Polydor or Polygram. Polygram, sorry. And, you know, he, he was in charge of the jam when the jam released singles and Debbie Harry and Brian Ferry, like big, big artists from back when so you know mike is massive massive music connections anyway and as i said to you i was going in there buying the chinese guy gooey that worked in there was so knowledgeable but you know over time when you're buying stuff they they recognize what you're into and what value you are of that you know in that in that area of music and you know record shops back then to record shops today totally different ball game they were a lifestyle destination you know people who come in the record shop and they'd be in there all day with you with sofas chatting spending money listening to tunes it was a, a, if, if one thing that the internet killed it was record shops in that form and that's a that's a bit of a shame because they were amazing play all the record shops used to even just pop in there was a there was a vibe in all of them all of them so yeah, um, it was actually Mike's wife, Anne, that asked me to uh, offer me the job, really. I was coming in, spending spending all my wages in there anyway. I might as well just heard him and cut out the middleman or something. So, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, so... Uh, and, and, she, and, and so how did you go from being a bedroom DJ or, a, well, a, a pub DJ to a DJ who played out at, say, Claire's and then at other places? Well, I was in the shop and um, obviously, you know, the Southwest was booming at that time. You know, early, early 90s, we were, we had, um, you know, we were putting up parties on ourselves. Um, there were, you know, the venues that we had available to us, there was like Obsession doing stuff at West Point in Exeter. Uh, loads of things going off. Plymouth had two amazing venues, um, the Dance Academy and, and the better one of the two was Plymouth Warehouse amazing Cornwall Coliseum again another great venue so we had a lot of good venues that were being utilized by rave promoters from around the country trying to find somewhere a little bit more legitimate to do it rather than a field we had quite an abundance of venues down here available and 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 ready to go really so um you know you'd be in the shop and you know we were a ticket outlet they'd come in you said either meet the promoter or the guy selling the tapes. And it, it's just a massive, massive networking exercise that they come in. You know, a lot of a lot of the 
back then, you know, your promoters, your your big from your actual promoters of the parties would be out doing all the flyers, the ticket drops. They would be, you know, clocking thousands of miles a week, visiting every record shop to do it. So, uh, you know, you were, you were front and centre really for getting in. You know, it's uh, getting getting in the face or even just talking to the man. It it, it put me in a, a very good position, should I say? So. And how did you get your DJ name? Uh, it's, um, I think this got asked in one of the questions I clocked online. So yeah, I, uh, me and I did DJ with another guy originally. Um, and cause we were both Scorpios, literally the name came from that. Um, at, at the time I, 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 I was erring towards Vinyl Junkie, which I don't suppose John Vinyl Junkie, I don't know whether that has been before his time or afterwards. So, but, um, Quite early on, me and the other guy um, went our separate ways for no other thing. He's still a good mate of mine now. He still plays now. He still probably probably plays the decks more often than I do in his house, but never really followed that as a path, really. And uh, it went from there, really. So. Uh, are you are you into star signs? No, not really. Oh, okay. Well, I <laughs> well to be honest, you know, it's one of those. It's like I'm a Scorpio. It's 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 been not the star sign side of it for me, but, you know, there's a lot of, no, a lot of bullshit with, uh, with that side of things. Don't, it's a great, don't, get me, don't get me started on spiritualism. Well, to be fair, it's a great name, and particularly for a, for a hardcore techno DJ. So, you you know, you chose well, and it was fortunate that, that you were a Scorpio, because if you'd have been... Yeah, I did. Like... I've, had, I've, I've met a few people afterwards that, that, that were... Are saying that I remember Ram Jack said to me that 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 was on his list of names that he chose till he found out about me. So you know, I'm sure there's sure there's others, and I'm not the only one. You know, Grandmaster Flash's DJ was Scorpio, and uh, there's been a couple of others since. So you know, it's not exclusively mine. No, I but, think even, you, uh, but you're definitely Definitely the DJ toughest. Johnny Size um, released a, a drum and bass track under the name Scorpio as well, but I'm you're, not taking credit for that you're one. You're definitely the hardest. Um, <laughs> and uh, did you uh, did you find it harder to get wider recognition coming from the southwest, which 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 was cut off, and you wouldn't have had, I, I wouldn't have thought, the bigger promoters of the massive raves outside of the southwest going to the southwest that much and seeing what you could do. Uh, you might be quite surprised, really. Oh, um, really? You know, like, we had um, sort of Dance Planet and Obsession were down here early 90s in, in quite, you know, doing big parties, doing numbers and often. Um, and, you know, like sort of, erring back to your question, I, I the reason I made it out of the Southwest was because I actually met... Um, Dave Prattley and Murray at a dance planet at Cornwall Coliseum. Ah. So um, it was, yeah, I, I had a bit of a, there's a story behind this. Go on. <laughs> there's a story behind this was um, I quite often would play dance planets quite often. Not the whole lineup would turn up for reasons unbeknown. And, you know, I'd play maybe, Book to play once, play twice, play three times. Even on one occasion, I think I played four times and covered the headliner. <laughs> and um, afterwards, I went out to get paid and uh, he gave me um, the money for the agreed one set. <laughs> and he handed it over to me and I, and I was stood with Ribsy and I went, I'm not happy with that. I'm not, 
no, I'm not standing for that. And I still remember to this day, Ribsy turned around to me and he went, Si, have you seen the size of his security? <laughs> and I looked around to see the size of his security and I went, yeah. And he went, and this guy looks like Jack from Tekken. I don't know if you remember your old arcade games and uh, he's a monster. And uh, I went to Ribsy, yeah, yeah, I've seen the size of him. And he went, does it not bother you? And I went, he lives four doors down from me. <laughs> so um, anyway, I had a bit of a, um, a, a verbal argument with uh, the promoter and uh, that was it. Um, didn't, didn't get any more money out of him, didn't ask for any more money because he had a load of ticket money in the shop anyway. So I just took my wages out of his ticket money when I went back to work on a Monday. And um, I got a phone call on the Monday, Tuesday after the party and it was Murray. And Murray rung me up and he was going, just answer me one question. And I went, yeah. And he went, why didn't you hit him? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm stood there with ambitions to play outside the Southwest. I've got two massively respected promoters in the building. I'm not going to be kicking off Punching promoters. And he said, oh, we, we were just waiting for you to hit him. We were really upset that you didn't. But to be honest, that was the phone call where Murray booked me for Dreamscape, which was my route out of the Southwest. So, you know, reasons, was it fate, whatever. It, you know, that, that the result in, from that night, I ended up being booked by Murray, which was my first booking um, out, sort of outside the Southwest. And then straight followed up a day later by Dave Prattley and booked outside the Southwest. Wow. So, so I must have done something right that night. So, <laughs> Well, not punching someone, probably. No, um, no, no, no. I'm very calm. <laughs> did, did you, I mean, did that, did that, how did you feel when you had those back-to-back -back phone calls from those two of the most eminent promoters in, in, in UK rave? They're, they were like, you know, that's like having, setting yourself a goal or, you know, or thinking, you know, I'd, I'd like to be doing that at a certain time and then going down, playing a party and, and it being recognised. But, you know, they, they both did recognise. They were in parties. Both Murray and Dave would be in there at the party, watching what's going on, being aware of everything around them because that was their game. They knew what to do. Murray was very entrenched in the Southwest. Um, yeah, you know, I think even Clarkie's honorary Cornish now. Um, Master Vive, again, who played for Murray, was again Cornish boy. They, they Easy Groove, massively influenced in, in Dreamscape. There was, a, there was a, a strong Southwest contingent anyway. So, it, you know, it was quite nice that it wasn't just me. A, a, a lot of the guys that were doing the scene down here at the time got recognised by other promoters. So. And did uh, did playing Skelter and Dreamscape live up to your expectations and hopes? Oh, more so. I, I, I heard toward it a minute ago when when I played my first Skelter, I, I followed Dave Angel and, you know, I just went up there. I'd, I'd played um, Plymouth the, the Christmas before, uh, like a Christmas party with Clarkie, which was probably one of the first times I played with Clarkie and I, I remember him turning up and he played and I played and he was kind of, I think I played before him and he was there going, oh, thank fuck, I found someone else that plays tunes like me. And it was, it, it was, you know, to go up there and then to play your music to, um, you know, people that had not heard you play before and to get a, a, the response that it did 
was was phenomenal really it was more so um for me you know dreamscape was a bit of a um i was probably a bit of a rabbit in the headlights i don't really remember that much about it It was more get it right do it right you know you're here to you're, you're here to show what you do um the um the first skelter just went played the reaction was amazing um Dave rung me after that one and said to me, he went, oh, that, that set's already legendary. This is like a couple of days after the party. And I was like, oh, and he went, but I'm just ringing to tell you that uh, um, just the way I am, I don't book people um, on consecutive parties. He went, so it's no offence to you that um, you're not on the next one or whatever. And I was going, no, no, I didn't expect to be anyway and he went well, nice. I'll just sort of let you know and I missed that one and I think I did pretty much everyone after that so you know he, he was true to his words you wouldn't do everyone he, oh, he, re- he, met, he realised his mistake of not booking you that second time really or quite clearly <laughs> um, and um, and after that did you start getting sent more dub plates because you became this more prominent DJ did, were dub plates a thing in, this, in, in, in the hardcore techno scene in the same they, way they were they were Far rarer than I would say they were amongst the happy jocks. Um, that you, you know, you got them. The people were that you, you knew the people that were playing the music. You know, most. <laughs> were, they, most were, there, were there any? Did, were there any that came from abroad? Because obviously there was uh, the hardcore. Don't, no, abroad, I'd say I'd, I'd say ninety. No, not promos from abroad. Not at all. Right. No, the way the way you got your promos from abroad was more so being in the record shop making the connections at the distributors that was they were they were far more important like um lee muspratt who works at mo's uh, worked at mo's music machine lee was you know he knew what i was into um and you know i would order stuff from him and he would just go oh sorry i've got you this got you this and it was just spot on and he was like he would have like what mo's music's promos that you know a lot of people who would be visiting mo's in london would be getting them but because we had this edge and we weren't looking for what they were they were getting. There was this this other pile of promos that probably weren't getting distributed how they were. And then, you know, I, I've spoke to Fergus, you know, and I know Fergus uh, in years gone by worked heavily with Moe's and worked in a record shop. And he was saying, you know, oh, Lee used to sort us right out because they we were their arm. We worked in the shops and, you know, you get that to us and then we're ordering it. And it's and it's a chain reaction. So no more more come through the record distributors, Calvin um, Alpha Magic, another one, you know. And then later on, when Ribsy got a job at Prime, you know, it's it's all you make connections as you go. But um, more so, very rarely, unless it was people you knew or had met as you travelled, like going along, you were getting promos, but not. Not on the scale that everybody else is. My okay. my, my dubs is, is a very small part of my collection. Oh, really? Well, that was a a, sto- a, a question from Tom Crago. Thanks for that, Tom. Uh, and James Hine, who's another big fan of yours, he asked, oh, "What's your favourite record record label of all time?" Of all time, um, God, that's a tough one. It would probably be, or oh, I'd have to say Enzyme because I'm a big Ophidian fan fanboy. Um, it, the, the guy's almost uh, he's like a, a digital Mozart he, he makes really good tunes really structured but just beautiful with it so yeah uh, Enzyme 
there's too many. It's a 30-year span to narrow it down to one <laughs> label. Heine should know better. <laughs> maybe maybe he's trying to stitch you up there, Heine. Um, and um, what is your view on MCs? Because I, I know that your pals with ribs. Here's my favourite hardcore MC. Um, and I, I've got to say... The, the hardcore techno MCs, and including you know, Squidgy B in this and Sharky, I, I, I feel like they seem to be more understanding of the music than perhaps in other scenes. Is that fair? And if that is the re- if that is true, why do you think that is? Ribsy's a DJ, so Ribsy is he he knows when to speak, when to shut up. Um, Squidgy was very much, you know, me and Squidgy travelled everywhere together. He was my wingman in the car. He was my wingman at the party. He was my wingman at the after party. And he, and he lives about 500 yards down the road. So um, he knew, he, you know, the beauty of him was he knew all my tunes. John Sharks, Sharky I've known since he was 15. Um, he first emceed me for me in a club when he was 15. And... I remember my mate brought him in, like, can my mate MC for you? And I was like, is he even old enough to be in here? And no. <laughs> so, you know, this is pre-John meeting Druid and all that lot. So, you know, um, we all go back such a long way. Um, it's, 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 um, it, we've all got such good history with each other. There was so much banter on the mics with each other, so much piss-taking. It, it was all part of the thing. It, you know, I, I remember often... We'll be listening to a tape in the car or whatever and like just listen to something Sharky had said during a party and be like, oh my God, I can't believe he's just said that. But it was, it was, it was in jokes as well. You'd have, you'd have stuff that would be said and nobody else would really twig and you just, yeah, it, it was, there was a vibe. Uh, MCs, uh, I like, I like MCs. There is some really good MCs. Some MCs need to understand that you're there to, it, it's about the music. It's not about them. I prefer a host to an MC mm. uh, more so. Um, they're your guided tour on your journey. Mm. They're taking you there. That's, well, in, their, that's the job. In terms of Sharky, um, he's had some tough times recently, which have been documented in uh, in the papers. Um, but a lot of people have been asking about him just for his his funniest stories because he's such a character uh, on and off the mic. So let's 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 remember some happy times of, of Sharky. What's can you is there a, is there a moment a memory of him in your mind that sticks out apart from that first time you met him when he was too young <laughs> to be in the club? Uh, but is there you know a, a messiest moment or a funniest moment involved with Sharky? Let's remember some some fun times. Oh, it's, uh, honestly, there's there's he he was just so random, so random. It, was he he could do stuff that no other MC was he had um, an absolute rapport with the guys on the decks the other guys on the mic that the ravers in the audience he he was pieing harder than them you know he was he was the 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 go-to guy he was a proper vibe creator he was you know I've, I've got nothing but love for John. He, he is, he's amazing. And, and, and I hope, you know, I've, I've read the same article as well. And I just hope he's on the way to getting better. And, you know, if, if, if any of it, you know, it'd be nice to see him out and to get him out. We, you know, he came to uh, Bristol probably two years ago with me and Squidge uh, for Mark Smith's birthday. 
and and he was he was good then and reading that was a little bit distressing i don't you know you don't want to see anybody any of your friends in that in that situation and you know i just hope he gets better soon really well we all do i think and uh john if you ever happen to be listening to this i i've known you admittedly a very small amount over over the years but we all all of us who are listening to this uh all the all huge fans of yours here on raw and all of our listeners and we all wish that you you the very best and we hope you're back on your feet soon and if you are listening to this make sure you come on the podcast because we want to celebrate all of your fantastic uh, moments yeah. in the scene here here are you ready for the sound of dj scorpio well we hope you're enjoying today's episode of raw but now's where we ask you inevitably for your help to keep this project rolling on we're a tight-knit team of four working part-time for free taking no wages out of this project to create this podcast and it's quite a serious undertaking alongside our normal day jobs hopefully you can see from our progression from audio to video in the few months since we started this podcast that thanks to your ongoing donations we've managed to improve our equipment and i'm pleased to say your generosity means this podcast now washes its own face in terms of costs which is absolutely great news and thank you thank you thank you so much to any of you who've donated uh, we've got big big plans for the future but we aren't going to be able to do it without your support so if you want us to keep making raw you're going to need to keep on funding raw and that will help with the cost of renting or buying recording kit and paying expenses to travel the country and interview more of your favorite rave artists from the 90s so if you can spare anything at all no matter how big or how small you can do so at gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast that url again is gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast and if you're not in a position to donate because we know it's a tough time for everybody you can instead help by subscribing and sharing our content on youtube facebook instagram and twitter you just need to search for raw the 90s rave podcast go and do that now please massive love and respect to each and every one of you so simon um we talked about Dreamscape and how you came to be booked for them, and also Helter Skelter. But uh, lots of people really—it's it's, it's Helter Skelter where you're probably best associated for those big '90s raves. Um, Matt Edwards has asked; he wants to know what it was like DJing in the techno room, uh, techno room between sort of '96 and '98, when hardcore techno was at its peak, fan base, uh, fan base wise in the UK. Well, that's at least his opinion. Yeah, no, no, I fully agree with it. it was... <laughs> amazing it was you you know that's the pinnacle of your career really i would say it was just vibe you know those, those helter skelter just hit hit the nail on the head with their parties they you know they they got their techno room right it became it, you know the the technodrome is is as much you know a name used as Helter Skelter that for the size of the room how legendary it is should should answer most people's questions because it's it's um, it's legend is far bigger than the room it was given. Nice answer. And um, there's been talk that Helter Skelter would come back. It wouldn't be a Helter Skelter reunion without DJ Scorpio, would it? It wouldn't be a Helter Skelter reunion without all the jocks that played at Skelter. Because I know, but you're not them. That's why I'm it's asking just, you. It's just a party, <laughs> and you know, by all means, if it if it was to happen, I you know, I'm I've I've seen enough people who go, oh, it's not going to happen, and all this. Well, you know, the longer this COVID goes on, actually, every generation is itching for a night out, and 
Um, you know, I can see quite possibly that happening. I, I did resurrection in um, Scotland last year, pre-COVID, um, and the, you know, twelve thousand people at Ingleston sold out for a hardcore party, and that was probably a, a lot more techno than it was happy hardcore. Um, if they can pull twelve thousand people to Edinburgh, can can Harold Skelter pull fifteen thousand people plus in in England? Yeah. And with the amount of people that want to go out, even more so, it's um, it's. I don't think it's pie in the sky. Once um, once all this is over, it's it, you know there's there's going to be a few rules imposed on everyone until you're coming out the other end of COVID. And would you risk a large amount of money on a big party when people like to shaft you at the last minute and go, actually, no, <laughs> there you go, lose all your money again. Um, I, I would say it's probably more a possibility now than it's than it's been before. Well, I mean, I just... we, we're hearing, I mean, we're hearing stuff as well this end. It does look like it's not pie in the sky. Now, people will say it is, but from what I've heard, from people close to Dave, uh, it, it isn't pie in the sky. It's by no means a done deal, but it's, no, not, I don't, pie, I, it's not a pie in the sky. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm of the same ilk. When, when Majika first announced it, I, I was a little bit sceptical. Um, <laughs> seeing, seeing Matt do it was a whole different ball game, um, you know. And I, you know, I know Dave. Dave is a fucking good promoter, a very, very clever businessman. Uh, and a top bloke and if he thinks it's right he'll know more than all of us lot put together whether it's right and at the end of the day if it's right he'd do it and I think if it isn't if it isn't done post this I can't see it ever sort of happening I think this would be a prime time to do it um Cy Rose asks that you and Clarkie were accepted by the Happy Crew and you often would play in the Happy Raves uh, Happy Rooms at Raves when other harder DJs would never have been accepted. He wants to know what the secret of that acceptance was and whether you would adapt your sound to that happy crowd. I, th- I think I covered that a bit earlier when yeah you would adapt your sound but you In be what still... way? How would you do so? Um just, just, just the style of tunes you were playing, maybe a little bit more um, less industrial, maybe you know a bit more party edged, a bit more riff based, you know, where where you know you're you're trying to drag them over. Like the the last thing you want to do is is scare them off before you've you you almost it's, it's like a you tug of war pulling them in a little bit a little bit by and and you'll drop one tune and then all of a sudden they go oh actually I didn't realise it was like this and. There's too many people were focused on the speed and it isn't about the speed because like, you know, I've, I've listened to it. It's, it's how you play your music and it's, it, it's, yeah, you would definitely tailor my, my set in the main room to a set in the back room would be different. It would be just more of, yeah, this is what we do, but that's more at that end of the scale. <laughs> well, in, in, that vein, in that vein, would you, we know you planned your sets because you've said that, but would you also plan your sets based on who you were after? So, for instance, in, in, in the techno room where anything goes, you might have a slower set like M-Zone or Ribs, and then you've got HMS or, you know, whatever, playing their, or Loft Groover playing their, sp- their speed core. Would you play faster or slower depending on who you were following, whether it was one of the slower DJs or the faster DJs? 
No, no respect. No. <laughs> no you'd, 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 like, say I was following Loft or whatever. You knew Loft or H were going to finish at some incredible BPMs. You know, you can't, you can't just mix into that and then carry on for another hour. Well, everyone needs, like, a, everyone needs a fucking rest as well, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was find a fucking big intro that, you know, that, that, that by the time the intro's finished and it's, and it's about to kick, it's, you know, they've forgotten how fast they were dancing that minute and a half two minute before and and you're off on this ride it's not no you wouldn't you know you you would possibly no maybe how you finished your set you might not if you might leave it for somebody else by not going that if it was somebody following you playing sort of techno and trance or purist techno or whatever you might not cane it as much but not always (laughs) okay uh and lee samways wants to know what's the best set you've ever played in your eyes. Oh, God. Oh, God. I, I, I was dreading this question. You can't put 30 years into one set. <laughs> Not a chance. As, uh, yeah. Too many. Too many. And, you know, and if if you... Yeah, no, I could, I could never answer that. They were, they've all got elements. There's some... You know, I, I hopefully haven't paid my best set ever yet. So. Good answer. Well done. Um, and what's the dodgiest rave you've ever played, and what and why? <laughs> oh, dodgy raves. We had a few. There was a dance planet in Aston Villa Leisure Centre once. It was quite scary. Um, because to, of oh, yeah, because of where guns and gangsters, right? <laughs> guns, guns. Yeah, gangsters. Uh, the funny thing was, I I played the Leisure Centre first, and then I actually had a gig at Die Hard. Uh, so I played and then left and did my gig at Die Hard, but actually because everyone we were out with was all at Dance Planet in Berm- at the Aston Villa Leisure Centre, the plan was to go back there. And the difference of leaving to go to play at Die Hard, played at Die Hard, finished and get back to Aston Villa Leisure Centre, and it was almost like they'd transported the rave to Beirut and there were... You know, like I remember stood there and some uh, saw a knife go down the canvas on the side of the um, merchandise stall like that. And then the, the arm come and then the arms reaching through and stealing all the merchandise. And the security didn't help because they were all dressed like paramilitaries. It was just, yeah, uh, there were people getting massively taxed in the toilets. And yeah, it was scaryish. Did you did you, um, did you sort of did you sort of quietly quite like that that sort of because you like you're a hardcore techno DJ so uh, hardcore techno DJs and hardcore techno gigs do attract interesting people do you no. quite like those sort of uh, no, 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 a bit no. edgy? I, 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 would, I, I would completely counteract that you know the, the the tough side of our room isn't the people it's the music you know we the the, the the, the image that it's painted because, you know, like I don't, I'm, I'm not a fan of speedcore. Um, I've got my limit on a BPM and half of that, you know, it's whatever. I you know, it, 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 it noise. I'm to, sorry. I'm sorry to speedcore fans, but it, I, I, look, I like you. I like your stuff, Scorpio, but I can't, I, I personally, I can't get with that, that sort of when it's just one long noise <laughs> for me. That's not really my vibe. So, yeah, 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 like, you know, 
we've all we've all got a hammer drill anyway so it's um but but it's the 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 there was an element of that it was like you know it was you know skinhead nazi music no it wasn't you know it was it was as much had a had a you know anti-fascist theme as like the two-tone move, uh, movement so do you know do you, you remember know, there was a piece that was written in one of the newspapers about um about baby star loft groover yeah it was like do you know my old boss wrote that <laughs> It was good at research then. Well, quite. No, yeah, research wasn't really high on his skill set, to be honest. Uh, he was more a chuck it in the paper and worry later type, to be honest. And, uh, I mean, that's reflected in a lot of his behaviours. I, I will say he's not... He's not the the most ethical or best journalist going, but uh, yeah, it, I, I always find that quite amusing. Had he just asked anybody, uh, no, yeah, Lothgrove is not know, a fascist was- guy, mate. <laughs> out, out of that out of that room there was probably you know two or three people that that, that you shouldn't really have labeled that with you could have picked a few others and that, that it might have worked your story might have been that, that had a bit more uh credibility about it so but it, it was it was good because uh when you when you read it, it was just like it was almost you watching a car crash happen as you as you read through the article, and then you know you read about the fascism, the skinheads, and then the the prolific DJ in that scene is a DJ called Lost Groover, who's black. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what, you know, because you live so far away in the southwest, and you would you know, like you say, you know, you'd do Villa, do Leicester, then whatever. But there was there would have been even more because actually a lot of the the stuff that you that that you play was very popular the further north you went did it not get very incredibly annoying living so far away from and having to just spend hours and hours each weekend on the road well it was you know in the in the early 90s we were we were putting on parties down here and we did some parties called omnitech it was two friends of mine that, that had the money and you know with with the help of myself being in the scene and that and putting on nights we we had some serious nights um plymouth warehouse we had um, Cole Cox down where that that interview come from that Ollie shared. Um, you know we, that Plymouth warehouse we put. We, I think it was licensed for seventeen hundred, and we put two thousand seven hundred in with you know one more <laughs> one more at the back and uh, stuff. So it was really popular down here, but it it was weird how it then started. You know, I noticed there was this little area of North Wales that started at roughly you know similar sort of time when clubs like. Um, uh, Dolphin um, did Steam up in Rill playing the same music and you're like hold on a minute this is really weird I live in a seaside town in the southwest and there's a seaside town up in the northwest that's doing something similar and you know you just started noticing little pockets coming up a- around the country and you know it was driving doesn't bother me you know I, I could get to Manchester from Torquay in three and a half four hours it's not it's not a ball ache you drive like you DJ yeah, it's, it's, it's not good when you're listening to your set. Hard and fast. Yeah, hard and fast. <laughs> um, and um, and did, were you playing abroad much as well? Um, what were your favourite countries uh, abroad? I, I, I play? played. I played in Germany. I haven't, I haven't actually played in Holland. I played in France. Holland, you know, that was possibly a missed. Did I miss an opportunity? Did I not? Maybe if I'd have done a, a bit more production. I might have hit Holland. It's very hard for, you know, at the end of the day to expect, am I going to go out there as an English guy that plays Dutch music, playing for Dutch when there's some other Dutch DJs out there that play the same? I, You know, I get that. To be honest, I love love the English scene. 
we we had great parties great people you know the, the amount of friends that i've had right the way through and as you said that you know they are more dedicated to their style of music you know it's not just a fad they were in for two or three years they're still in it 20 odd years later as a punter um so um you know it's i have traveled abroad with it but maybe a bit if i'd have done a little bit more production but you know is that a regret sorry is that a regret um not not really because i would say i had um kids a family a job um after after you know i was working in the record shop and i did all my um computer exams and that while you know while i had the time and stuff and in the in you know it got to a point where you go is is this a full-time career for the rest of your life when you got a family and commitment and you know could i've gone down that route yes possibly did i want to give myself a bit more of a foundation going and to be honest from the point i worked um i worked for ibm for 15 years and um the um you know um i i never relied on my djing for an income so i enjoyed it more so i didn't have to take that booking six hour drive away when you know it's going to be dead to do another six hour drive home because it's and then it becomes a bit of a job Mm. and for me it was it's not a job it's you know i'm lucky that i get to play the music i like to other people it's it's that's the way i've always looked at it and and if you can if you can do that i didn't you know i i feel for so many of the guys now with all this going on with covid that you know that is their income and they've been screwed left right and center by the authorities and and what's going on you know uh, you know perhaps i didn't make the right choice nobody's gonna ever know but it's um you know for me the fact that i had a nine to five job that i did and that paid my bills when i went out to party it was you know i did the parties that i wanted to do because i knew they'd be good and i'd enjoy them and it's saying and you know if they weren't busy it didn't didn't ever screwed me to go to a promote oh you've had a shit night just take that off it or whatever because that wasn't the reliance for my income and you, you you can see it for other people of how that would be but so yeah you could have but you know i wouldn't be where i am now so i can't i can't really change my actions why did you not produce more um just time you know i had a i, had a, <clears throat> I worked for ibm for 15 years so i'd work monday to friday i'd finish work on a friday being in the southwest and then I'd probably have a gig in Manchester or somewhere up north. So I'd literally come home, get in the car, disappear, and I'd get home sometime Sunday. And then I'm back at work Monday morning and I've got kids and stuff that you've got to do with your kids and because you're not available at weekends, that's the time you do with your kids. It, it's just a prioritising what is the most important thing in your life. And to be honest with you, you know, I, I've made tunes and... I would, you know, I'd love the opportunity to have made more, but, you know, something had to give and it was probably that side. And I, I, and I would rather that more than anything because, you know, I like playing music to people it's, and I don't care whose music it is as long as it's good. So. 
Is that why your record label, Semtex, uh, didn't last for as long as it might have done? Was that was that to do with that the shortness? No, of that? no, 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 no. So um, Semtex was started by. Uh, it wasn't my label. It was a friend of mine called Steve. Um, he started the label, um, and um, it was it was doing okay. And Steve. Um, he was making tunes. The other guy that was down here was making tunes. Another guy from Torquay is a guy called Dave Parkinson. Now, Dave is one of the top ghost producers in the UK now. He moved away. You know, I used to go around his house and he would engineer some of the stuff. But Dave, you know, Dave's made tunes for Oakenfold and uh, Tiesto, Van Buren. He's, he's in like... Even even toured as a keyboard player with the Happy Mondays, so and wrote one of their albums with them. So you know, I think it was more the fact that Dave moved up to London, really, and and the opportunities. You know, it was it's one of those. I'm still I make uh, I've started making tunes again recently. I've got a new tune I've done with uh, Antones that we were going to release pretty much as lockdown started. So that's that's back in the vault until uh, <laughs> till after lockdown. So um, it's it's not a it never happens. It's just when when you get the time and hopefully you know it's uh, the, there is plans to do more. So okay, that's great. A lot of, a lot of people would be very excited to hear that. And your most famous collaboration, really though, is the is DJ producer uh, Luke McMillan. Um, people are really interested to know about your back to back sets with him, which were which were you know went down in legend. How did you first meet? Um, at party in Plymouth, uh, he was playing. Um, I met him through Ribsy. Ribsy knew Luke from a long time. Um, Ribsy and, and Luke was sort of coming down here with the revelation parties that Mac One put on. Ribsy a DJ at those. I played one. Um, so we were around each other. I think possibly it's Dance Planet that put us back to back first. I'm not thousand percent sure but i'm pretty sure it was dance planet where we first did the back-to-backs um you know a lot of people go oh is it because you were so similar we're not similar at all the reason it worked was we we were of a genre but almost opposing poles of the genre luke was more on the industrial vibe and you know it it, it basically was like the dark and light and our back-to-backs some people you see back-to-back were one like one on one off two on two off we were we were more like three on three off so you could take it your way and then the other one would bring it back and then they'd take it that way and it and it and it worked better than you know it, nothing was ever expected of it it wasn't it wasn't put there we you, you know i remember luke used to comment and when people go oh scorpio versus producer he's like it's not it's not, it's not a versus it's uh it's it's back to back. It's not a verse, you know, he's my mate or whatever. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, we were just of a scene and it wasn't, there wasn't loads of, loads of people. There was, there was this, you know, your, your lofty, your clarky, um, easy groove of a, of a sorts, um, um, HMS, um, I'm going to get shot for leaving people out here, but you, you, you know, it was, it was not a massive, scope of djs out there playing it and, they, and then it sort of grew as your, your your dolphin and the north wales thing has happened and everything so it's it's more 
it, it's more we evolved as friends as well as DJs, as like the whole thing. And like even with the crowd, some of them guys, you know, you've known them 30 years in the crowd. You know, it's... Uh, They've all become personal friends. So. You think you you said earlier that you know the peak was ninety six to ninety eight. Was there was there ever a period? Maybe it was after that. I don't know where you sort of questioned whether where the harder style of music was going, and you weren't quite as into it as you might have been. Well, not not really. I think it was a bit different for us from the happy hardcore scene because there was a bit of a bit of a low sort of the late nineties, definite low after. Um, after the millennium, um, which you know killed things, and you know there was a there was a dip in that in in that sort of what I would call like the main room scene. But when you, when you like from nine sort of nineteen ninety seven sort of time, um, it we'd we'd sort of evolved as well as doing the technodrome. You see the popularity of techno, and you see a room that's. Um, not big enough for the amount of people that want to get in and stuff like that. And, you know, when Andy Bowler started, there was uh, the Steam Nights up in Rill. The original guy that was putting on the Steam Nights, I I don't, can't, I try to remember back the story um, when thinking about this yesterday, that there was an original guy that, I don't know whether he ran the venue or was the promoter, and he pulled out and then Andy Bowler took over um, doing that night and then that evolved into Defro techno merging with them so there was like a, a north a joining of the north and the south scenes together which was again really good and then they put on the um, Defro techno parties at Milton Keynes which again was a, a bigger scale that was us taking the main room at, at Milton Keynes and doing a party you know it wasn't as round as you know as a as a mainstream thing but it was they were good parties there and but that seemed to stem from then that um then um North grew out of the death row collaboration because after those parties there was a bit of a you know bit of a fracture split back the other way although it was still there and um uh, that that was the beginning of North, and you know, like I'm seeing a flyer last night. Just looking back, just trying to flick some memories for this interview, <laughs> and uh, you know, like in 1997, we were doing weekly parties at the Void in Stoke, and they were fucking banging lineups week in, week out, week in, week out, and you know that that when you're seeing the sort of happy scene not die but drop back. And, and your scenes there, because there wasn't loads of clubs doing it. There was, you know, there were niche techno clubs all over the country, but, you know, it, there, there, there wasn't big numbers. They were, didn't have to be a massive club as long as it's a good sound system. And, you know, you could get the, you get enough numbers in there to make it a good night. So, and and that went through well, well, well into the past the millennium that that was working. So I didn't really see that sort of, dip that the happy hardcore boys sort of saw in their scene well slightly related to that simon paul worth asks um he wonders what your view is on the relationship between uh, hardcore techno and happy hardcore and, and and could hardcore have achieved greater credibility and longevity if the happy djs and producers had focused more on integrating some of the elements of hardcore techno into the uk sound and uh, and less on the sort of well he says stabs and vocals but i think we all know what he means cheese yeah, well, you know, you you you've still got those elements there, you know, like as much as there's the 
you know, you got you got you know, so many other people did do that. Look at Brisky cross that boundary between that room and our room. Um, Joey Riot's done it in 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 latter years more so and and smashed it abroad with his destructive tendencies act as well. So there was Scott Brown, another one. Do you get what I mean? So it, it did that did happen. But, you know, I, no, I don't really want, I, I want people to play that music that have got some passion for it, that want to do it. It's not, not just because it works. It, it's, you know, there were, there were promoters that were really open to it and there were promoters that fucking hated it. And they try so many other things, like, you know, they put in, no, naming no names, certain promoters would put in a, get rid of the techno room and put a hard house room in or get rid of the techno room and put, Summit, you know, it, and it was just like that. And then you go, What's the party like? Oh, that room was empty because nobody's going to go to a hardcore rave for a hard house room. True. Mm-hmm. So they sort of they work together. And you know, people like Hixie with they, um, Hixie with HCID followed very much the same ethic as um, as Dave Prattley did of like, you know, maybe not even maybe not enough. I think sometimes that it probably deserved a little bit more in the main room rather than a token hardcore set. Maybe two would have broken up. The, you know, we all we all started going out when when rooms were variety. You'd have a piano happy hardcore bass DJ followed by a jungle DJ followed by somebody playing some techno, a bit of everything. And people were, were so much more accepting of other styles of music. And then suddenly it became very, you know, very focused down one month and maybe a token set of this in or maybe a token set of that and it just became too much of that i think if they'd kept a little bit more diversity with them it would probably carry them through longer and and why do you think that hardcore techno and gabba isn't as big in the uk as it is in parts of europe and why was it that happy hardcore and jungle dominated the uk uh, raves and, and techno just just didn't didn't get that big explosion that we've seen for instance holland's a great example yeah, Holland, Holland's a massive example, but you know their their version of Radio One in Holland will play Gabba tunes. Do you get what I mean? It's it's they are so much more. Um, what's the word? It's it's so much more around their everyday life. They they hear Gabba techno, hardcore techno in 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 going about their normal life. A lot of people in this country don't. And a lot of people are immediately focused on the BPMs and 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 it's 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 not about that, you know. When I, I play some of my mates that make deep house music, I play the, like when I produce songs and go listen to that, and you know, I'm going, they go, oh, it's too fast. I'm going, just listen past that. Listen to this guy's fucking production. Listen to how it's made, and then they listen and they go, actually, yeah. Do you get what I mean? It's almost breaking down that preconceived barrier that's not actually there. So it's, um, you know, Holland is, you know, we, me and my partner went over to um, Thunderdome in uh, October last year. Phenomenal, you know, mind blown after 30 years of 50,000 people all listening to the music that I like. Like, you imagine turning up and half of Glastonbury is hardcore techno. There were 50,000 people there with six arenas and every room you went in, was your sort of music. It's like, you know, you're going, oh my God, it's it's like Narnia or whatever. It's like you've turned you've turned up. Yeah, did I die yesterday? And this is this is where I've ended up. So, you know, it's it is 
it's weird because like you look happy hardcore we we broke uk with that style of music more than happy hardcore broke europe with theirs so you know it's like sometimes i think if they'd given it a little bit more exposure it could have and I, and i and i think for other circumstances in the in the techno scene it could have been a lot bigger had had things happened in different ways do you get what i mean but you know hindsight's a wonderful thing so it is indeed. You are listening to DJ Scorpio here on Raw, the 90s Rave podcast. Get in touch. Hello at the 90s Rave podcast.co.uk on email and uh, also on social media. Uh, we're going to wrap this interview up very shortly and bring you bang up to date with what uh, Mr. Simon Scorpio is up to at this minute and what he thinks is the future of the hardcore techno scene. So, Simon, prior to COVID, how often were you playing out and what, and what sort of events were you playing out at, given that, you know, those big raves that did feature rooms with hardcore techno no longer really do that anymore? Yeah, no, was, uh, I would say it took, a, it took, you know, North probably ran from 97 to 2012, Get the dates right. Um, the um, after that, you know, the, the the number of events that were going off de- definitely dipped. Um, but you know, I've I've never I don't chase gigs. I've never been one to chase gigs. If they want me to play, I'll play your party, and I'll you know, it's it's it's. Um, so to be honest with you, I, I, I actually. Like, Pre-COVID, this year was looking quite nice. I had some nice little festivals lined up. I was going back to Scotland again to do um, the uh, the same guys that put on that resurrection for one night only. I do an ultimate 90s event in uh, April. I'll get a plug in there for uh, Martin Langer. Um, I think we're all going to be yeah. gagging for that one. Yeah, I, well, to be honest, after after that return of resurrection, you know, we walked in. I walked in with producer, and I think the venue had been open for like forty five minutes on a Saturday afternoon in April in Scotland. And you're like, okay, they haven't done a party for God knows fifteen twenty years. What's it going to be like? And we walked into that main room at twelve forty five lunchtime, and there were eight thousand people dancing. And I Mate. still, I could tell you the tune that was on. It was James and Stevenson first rebirth, and it, it like me and producer just looked at each other. He, he turned out to me, and he was like, "Shit's just got real." It was like 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 a time warp, stepping back in and go, "Fuck me, man! Where did all these people come from?" And you know that there was a, there's another one of them lined up for april which has already gone april july september back to april next year so you know it it could move but i don't see it not happening which is you know which is a good thing and 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 all the other talk i've seen talk of um pandemonium coming back um you know the talk of skelter coming back uh it could be post-covid could be really healthy for lots of lots of scenes because there is such a glut of people wanting to go out. I I, I think it is like, you know, if you're going to take any positivity out of uh, this, they've stopped us partying for a year. They're not going to stop us partying forever. And, 
you know, I'm I'm seeing some of the young younger elements are already itching far more than you know somebody that's been partying for thirty years to get them do it. But you know, I don't I don't blame them because everybody's getting a bit uh, stir crazy now and they want to go out and have a good time. So and and I think that's going to be a, a massive driving force post COVID. So. And while it's not hit you necessarily financially because you don't rely on it, how much are you itching to play out? How you you must just be gagging. Oh, absolutely, absolutely gagging. It's it's you know that's that's one of your personal highs. You know, you know where where you used to get high to get to get high. Back in the day, you don't need to do that. You've got other things that can, you know, standing up in front of a crowd and watching them go off to your music is is unsurpassable at times. You know, just watching a whole whole place with with the bounce that you get and everyone's in sync and you know, it's just it's it's stuff like that that you want to get back to and that you miss. And uh, you know, we've 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 all missed out this year you know there's even even those that have been to a couple of free parties or whatever have still missed out we've all missed out big time and i think it's uh everybody i've not met anybody that's not itching to go out mm. Well, talking about people who are itching to go out, before we close the show, I want to give a shout out to uh, Ollie Thumper Yates, who is absolutely hardcore techno mad. He's a big <laughs> fan of yours, he, a big friend of yours as well. And um, he helped set up this interview. So thank you, Ollie, for doing that and also working with me uh, on the preparation for it. You're a regular at his Chapel of Chaos nights. They're always banging up in Birmingham, aren't they? Is that one of your modern favourites? Oh, to- totally a modern favourite. It's got a vibe. Again, with this, it all, it all goes back. The, the things that stick in your mind are clubs that you've done that, um, you know, you, you you buzz about, oh, I'm going there tonight or I'm, I'm doing this. Not just because of the club, not just because of the music, not just because of the lineup, because of the, the, the punters that are in there as well. It's like, you know, you're catching up with longtime friends in and like-minded people all in the same place. It's all It's almost like all the pieces come together and you know ollie ollie is like a, i love ollie he's a legend he's so fucking knowledgeable about uh he knows more about my sets than i know about my sets i should have done some, <laughs> i should have done some research with ollie because he, he tells me things that i've done or i might have to clear them like not clear them with and check them just to make sure i'm right and uh I even sent him a, a mix i did at the weekend and i put 90s mix and then very shortly afterwards realized that i put in um, two ch- well one tune post post nineties that I'd done and I was like ah, fuck Ollie's gonna notice that and then, <laughs> then I then I messaged him and went like oh, I think I've made a mistake and put one post post nineties uh, in that mix and he went like oh, was it this one and I thought oh I didn't even think about that <laughs> so I went back and checked and I'd, I put two post nineties tunes in it so uh, oh dear was this the mix you were putting together for us Si? Uh, but it wasn't the mix that I'm putting together for you I got. You're getting your own special mix, Tom. Oh, fantastic, I'm not, I'm, fantastic. I'm not, to, I'm, not, I'm not one to recycle mixes. Um, <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you probably post-interview when, when you're putting this out so I can get that uh, done and coordinated. It'll be with you by the weekend anyway. Oh, so. People will love it. People will love that, mate, because, um, you know, loads of people have been saying, I hope, I hope you're going to do the, the guest the guest exclusive guest set mix for, with Scorpio as well, like you've done with everyone else. As I say, is all those people who loved you over the years, they still retain uh, a massive love for you. Uh, to look back now, finally, um, a few people have been asking this. What was your favourite year of the 90s for... You DJing and you're playing out and you're a lot of party, whatever you want. What was your favourite year and why? 
probably 97 just because it just had elements of everything you know um skeletal was it's uh skeletal was flying um uh did australia for for dave as well um um flew over and did like three parties in australia like a big party in sydney which was probably at the time one of the biggest things that had gone off there um you know, um, I, I, I spent most of that time um, corrupting Hixie while I was out there. Uh, Go on. And, and became, became very you know, good friends with him. And that, that stood the time you, going uh, you, I want to explore you, this you corrupt, corrupting, story, corrupting Hixie. What were you doing? <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think it was that period that um, Hixie decided that it was no longer a wise decision to drink. I, I think he may have may have come off that bandwagon in the recent couple of years i'm not too sure but for a massive period um yeah that was my fault we went oh dear. to we went we shared we basically um roomed together for the for the trip of australia um did sydney um we flew to sydney did some promo work and um did the party then flew to adelaide and then flew to um Perth and then back to Sydney so we spent quite a lot of time together and um we 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 had a bit of a, a drink in Sydney with a uh, Aussie DJ called uh, Kyle DJ Daydream um out there and basically we went back to the apartment and it was bring a bottle each and uh, I think um somebody had a bottle of JD somebody had a bottle of Southern Comfort and then I bought a bottle of Jaeger to finish in the freezer and we were unfortunately flying to Adelaide the next morning because um, Hixie had a gig in Adelaide and I didn't. So <laughs> we were pretty much up all night, drinking, collapsing, and then um, with an, like sort of an emergency exit out of Sydney early the next morning, at which point Ian was like, you know, almost like uh, hanging out of the taxi from his armpits up all the way to the airport. I, uh, I ended up having to push him on the luggage trolley through the airport, <laughs> at which point he, he was meant to sit next to me for the flight, but sat at the back with the stewardesses. And uh, it was, uh, I think I think he'll probably remember that night as the one time he DJ'd his set, sat on a stool because he couldn't stand <laughs> up still. So, and we, 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 the next night after that, I, I actually went out in Adelaide after his gig. He went back to the hotel for some sleep and I went out till like six the next morning with Bloody some Adelaide hell, guys. And we missed, we missed the flight to Perth for our other gig the next day. So that was due to my late arrival. And uh, we, we walked around, weirdly, just killing some time in Adelaide and walked in a park and bumped into Brisk. And he was going, rest, save me from him, save me from him. <laughs> He's just been ruining me while we were there. So, uh, yeah, we made Perth later that evening and, and did the gig down there. But, yeah, it was uh, – 97 was just too many big parties after big parties, really. So, yeah, I would say that was probably the strongest year. Yeah. Wicked, man. And um, just our final question, we ask everybody, um, is there anybody that you'd really like to hear us interview uh, and, and why would that be from the 90s rave scene? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, I actually rang him before I did this today and, uh, I, uh, you know, Ribsy has been such a friend, influence on my career. He has done everything. He is, you know, big, 
big guys. Everybody respects Ribsy for, you know, he's a, he's a fucking good DJ in his own right. And, and you know, as an MC, he's, he's unsurpassable. He, he, he gets people from other genres that, you know, Bookham will want him, uh, as a hardcore techno jock will want him, happy hardcore jocks don't, don't mind having him on there. So everybody is acceptable. He's been there, seen it, done it. Um, yeah, I would say Ribsy by a mile. Well, uh, I did, Ollie try, did uh, put us in touch and I texted him and he ignored me. So, Next time you <laughs> next time you give him a call, you got to tell him that uh, there's a spot waiting for him on the on the '90s Raid podcast. I will we'd, love, do. I, we'd love to have him. I was I was telling him about it earlier, and he turned around to me and said, uh, "I said, oh, you should go out and check out the the Slipmat one." I said, "You'll really enjoy the Slipmat interview, and 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 you'll get a vibe of what it's about. It's it's you. I think from watching that one, I understood what the podcast was. It was it's." chatting about old times and and you know that that boy has been there seen it and done it more than any of us he's he's hardcore through and through and you know still still looks as young today as he's always done I know. So. still doing it and did he say he would do it hey did he say he would I'll do the podcast do good I'll man good I'll man well do done well done listen don't you're send elect- Ollie to do a man's job <laughs> Very true. Ollie, if you're listening, leave it to the professional. Uh, Ty, you're an absolute legend. Uh, It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's been a a long old interview, but I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, bring back some of those old memories. Uh, Top man, mate. And uh, listen, we can't wait for COVID to, uh, to, as I say on previous podcasts, we can't wait for COVID to fuck off, frankly, and uh, all go out and have a big old party again. And uh, hopefully, maybe it's a little skelter. Are you doing it? You're at a chapel. I do. I do owe you a bit. I'll buy you more than one. No worries. At, at a chapel. That sounds like a plan to me, mate. All right, mate. Take care. Top Cheers, man. Top. Thank you That's, very much, mate. You're welcome, mate. That is uh, Simon Scorpio, DJ Scorpio here on Raw, the '90s rave podcast with me, Tom Latcham. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the latest episode of Raw. We've certainly enjoyed making it and bringing it to you. And we want to make more. Uh, But to do so, we are going to need some of your help, I'm afraid. Uh, We are just normal people with normal jobs. This is a hobby and not a very well-paid one at that. In fact, it's not paid at all. Uh, We've invested quite a bit of our money to keep this this show going. Uh, But we could really use some of your help uh, as well. Any donation, big or small, we know it's a difficult time for you all out there. It's a difficult time for all of us. uh, But any donation you you can give whatever size will help us go towards improving our kit it will help us get on the road pay expenses to go and interview some of your 90s rave favorites uh, and also just uh, keep bringing you some more banging 90s rave content if you do feel able to help that'd be great if you don't we do understand uh, but if you can head over to gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast that address i'll repeat just one more time gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast Uh, And if you can't give any money or you want to join our community, why don't you head over to Twitter? Why don't you head over to Instagram? Why don't you head over to YouTube? And why don't you head over to Facebook? Search Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Like us, subscribe to us, do all that. Get involved. 
So now it's time for a big shout out to some of our most generous donators and helpers. Uh, a big shout out to Chad O'Carroll, who knew that the 90s rave scene was big in North Korea. Oi, oi to you, mate. Uh, a big shout as well to Wayne Clark, who uh, gave some money via our GoFundMe.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast URL. Uh, he knows how in, uh, difficult it is to keep funding all this kit, and he's given us a fantastic donation. Thank you very much, Wayne. Big ups to you and Malcolm Payne. Ongoing funder from the US of A. We're glad you're enjoying it, mate. Keep listening. There's loads more to come where that came from. And also, I do want to give a big shout out to the Gabba crew who hopefully have enjoyed this episode. That's Ollie Thumper, Tom Evans, and my man, Ollie Wheeler. Oi, oi, boys. Oi, oi.